your iniquity, who heals life from the pit, who crowns you with step and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray as Travis comes to preach to us, Lord, that you will give him clear words and a clear voice to share your teaching. I pray also for all of us that we will have ears to hear and that we will understand and walk out the door today, uh, taking something from your word with us to sustain us in the week to come. Thank you, Father. Amen. on it's on good great um sweet hello my name is travis uh i am an elder here at village i'm really glad um that yeah you all are here with us this morning i know we did the welcome and elder already did that but i love to take the opportunity to also say it that i have the microphone i'm really glad you're here too um you can be a part of the family uh with us here today um we if you are your it's your first time here or if you've been away on holidays like all summer long, we are doing a series on the Psalms. Um, we've been doing a selection of Psalms and looking at, um, yeah, what kind of God has in his word for us um, from them. And I, I, I love, I've really, I've really enjoyed this series and have benefited from it um, because I think what the Psalms do for me, um, and I kind of hope, I hope they've done that for us as a church, is that they help me take like the living out of my faith in the day-to-day and how I feel about that and then, and then to interface it with, with God and the truth of his word and his character and his past promises fulfilled um, and his promises for the future. And so when, what it allows us to do is it allows us to take sort of our, I guess, emotional reaction to circumstances and things happening in our lives and just bring it 
bring it to the truth of who God is. Um, and so when we're dealing with times of grief and sorrow and anger and frustration or joy and rejoicing, we can, we can bring that to, to, uh, um, to the truth of who God is and, and really reflect on that. And the beauty of the Psalms is that you get to see Jesus all throughout it. And so it's been a real joy for me to be going through this um, and going through this series. Um, and, in, and today we're going to be in Psalms 103. And I know, Claire, thank you for praying. I'm going to pray for us one more time and we're going to go right in um, into this psalm together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the psalms, um, poems and songs that reflect on our experience um, as human beings as we try to walk as followers of you. Um, God, I thank you that you um, meet us wherever we are in whatever season we're in, however we're feeling about whatever's going on, and, and in gentleness and grace and compassion and understanding um, Reveal the truth of who you are and your promises, God. You convict of sin with grace. You encourage, you strengthen the weak. You do all of these things in these moments that we engage with you. And so, God, as we look at this psalm together today, um, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged. God, I pray that you would help us love you more um, leaving here today than we did when we first arrived. Um, So, God, whatever work you want to do in our hearts and minds, I pray that we would be humble and open to it and receptive. God, I pray that your spirit moving in this room today would not find hearts of stone, but instead would find hearts of flesh that want to know you more, want to draw closer to you, and want to know, um, experience your work in our lives. And so, um, God, as I speak, I pray that you would speak through me and um, speak to all of us together this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start with a question for the room um, based off something Jesus said um, there's a story in the New Testament, um, in the Gospels, where um, people are trying to catch Jesus out, lawyers are, and they ask Jesus, like, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus responds by quoting Scripture, as he often does, and says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he says that the entire summation of all of the law and all of the prophets can, it's like if you do that, you, you can do everything else. If you're doing this one thing, everything else is also being accomplished. Um, it's really cool, really poignant, really wise and sage. Um, I love that story. And I was reflecting on it recently and was asking myself the question, like, how well do I love God with all my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength? Um, it's an uncomfortable question because the answer is not very well pretty much all of the time. Um, I don't know about you. I hope you can answer that better than I can, um, knowing that we're all human beings in this room. I'm going to guess you're probably also in the same boat as I am. And so I want us to consider and start at the place of asking ourselves, how well do we love God? Do we love him with all of our hearts, all of our affections, and all of our emotions, and all of um, just like everything we are and, and how we feel towards him, like our, our emotional effort towards God? Like what does that look like? Does it honor God? Is it what he deserves? And about our minds, like the thoughts you think and what you think about God and what your thoughts toward God, like where are you at with that? Like how do, how, how do you love God with all of your mind? Or all of your strength and your energy and effort, is that all given towards loving God? And it's not. I mean, it's just, the fact of the matter is it just isn't. It never really is. There are moments maybe when we're doing it pretty well by God's grace, but in general, we're not doing very well with that. And I think this psalm for me, and hopefully for all of us, is incredibly helpful because what the psalmist is doing is he is 
asking his soul to bless God and encouraging himself to bless God, to love God, to love God as God deserves to be loved. He starts off by saying in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, heart, soul, mind, strength, all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with the steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalmist is begging himself to love God better and encourage himself to bless the God by not forgetting the benefits of God. And before we kind of move on, I want to, I want to kind of unpack the word bless here a little bit because I think sometimes we look at the Psalms and we think it, we just like synonymously like correlate it to worship music. I don't know if you do that. I do that in my head. It's just like, oh, like how well do I like sing praises to God? And how much is my heart kind of in sort of that emotional state? And, and I, th- I mean, it's not not true, but it's kind of an incomplete picture of what it means to bless God. Um, the Hebrew word, and I'm totally going to mispronounce this because I'm not seminary trained, but we're going to do my best, is barak, barak. I know it's one of those two translations, but it means to bless. It's most often translated as to bless secondarily, it's most often translated as to kneel. And so it's more than just like speaking well of God and singing praise towards God and worshiping God with our words, but it's a positional reverence towards who God is. And so it's more, I kind of want us to think about this, and hopefully as I keep saying the word bless in the rest of the sermon, we kind of get this mental picture that it's more than, than words or the songs that we're singing and how often we're kind of there, Right? But it's more of a positioning of our heart and soul in, in reverence and affection towards God. So I kind of I want us to be there, right? So when the psalmist is saying, bless the Lord, he's, he's entreating himself to, 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 to love, like affection, emotionally love the Lord, but also revere him and honor him for who he is. In verse 3 through 5, he, he says, to forget not all of his benefits, and then begins to list these benefits out. So what are the benefits he lists that we have from God? He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I think this is really interesting because if, if you took any one of these, it's really reason enough to bless the Lord right by itself. Like, just spend any amount of time meditating on the fact that God forgives all your iniquity. Camp out there mentally for a little bit, and you have reason to bless the Lord. And the psalmist is like puts that in the list, but really lists everything out. And I think there's something really interesting that happens here, because um, I think I connect with this psalm personally because my affections towards God follow my thinking about him. Like my my mind, like my heart follows my mind in, in that regard. And so um, I, I was reminded as I was kind of meditating on this of when Lauren and I were in marriage counseling and our counselor encouraged us kind of as an exercise during counseling, but also encouraged us um, to do it like in our marriage. And I don't do it enough, confession time, um, but to take time to just write out everything you love about your partner. Like, why do you love them? What do you love about them? What, what brings you joy about who they are? And to just, just the mental 
process of putting it on paper reminds your heart of why you love them. And what I remember him saying to us is that in, 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 in that exercise, what happens is like in engagement, that season, like pre-marriage, of course you love your spouse. Like you're there, you're emotionally like about the wedding day and you're like, oh, we spend all of our lives together. And it's like this fantastic, wonderful dream of what the, what the future's gonna look like. But the future actually looks like kids and laundry and bills and all sorts of problems. And so there's a thousand distractions that make you forget why you love that person. And then there's these moments where you find yourself in contention with one another. And all of these things begin to add up and distract you from the fact that you do love this person. And so the mental exercise of remembering the benefits helps your heart to stay connected and to love that person the way you should. Sorry for not doing that enough, Lauren. I'll give you well, write a love letter this week or something. Um, and so that's what the psalmist is encouraging his heart to do towards God, to bring himself back from whatever place he's in to being at a place where he can bless the Lord. And then he goes on to kind of expound on some of these. And so I, I'm just going to like spoil alert a little bit. This is a one-point sermon, right? Okay? Um, which you might be encouraged to hear. It's got three subpoints, so deal with it. But, but the, the one idea, the takeaway is that like, we can, it, 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 I want all of us to get to, to, to bless the Lord um, by remembering his steadfast love for us and reflecting on that. And so all that we're going to be doing this morning is just looking at what the psalm says about what God's done for us. And I just want that to just kind of like land on our hearts, us to really appreciate that, to love it, to delight in it um, this morning. So that's, that's what we're going to be doing. That's where we're going to be. That's the point. You just write that down in your notes. Take it away, put a big circle around it, and that's it, right? We're good. But this is, I want to, we're going to look at how the psalmist does that in here and hopefully take that away for us ourselves. So the first way that the psalmist highlights how he's experienced and how the people of Israel have experienced the love of God is through redemption. In verse 6 and 7, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. When I was reading this originally, I kind of just like skipped over it and kind of like didn't really, just two verses and it kind of feels broad, like broad brush stroked, a little vague. But really, I want us to think about what's being, what's included when the psalmist says, like he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Like, if you're an Israelite listening to that and just thinking about, like, all of the ways God made himself known to Moses and all of the ways he acted with the nation of Israel, you, you, think back to, you think back to the famine and Joseph and how God made a way for his promised people and his chosen people to, to have provision by going to Egypt in the first place. And then you, you would think about the fact that that turned into a really dire situation where the entire nation of Israel became enslaved in Egypt, and you think about the story of Moses and how God, even, even as a child, when God protected him and allowed him in a basket to not be put to death, like all the literally all the other children of Israel were being put to death, Moses was saved and ended up being in the royal family and growing up there and having status and influence, and then spending time in the wilderness and the burning bush and the ten plagues, 
and then God's ultimate deliverance at Passover where God finally broke the heart of Pharaoh and allowed the people, God's people to leave. And then Pharaoh changed his mind and then we've had the nation of Israel at the Red Sea and, and, and the trap between like the water and Pharaoh's armies and God literally split the sea and allow his people to cross on dry land and that same sea swallowed their enemies. And then you have all of these episodes in the wilderness and eventually the giving of the promised land and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. I mean, you have all of these moments in this big story. This, I mean, it's a dramatic epic of God's redemption of his people. And so when you hear his acts to the people, that all, that's all of that. And so as we ask ourselves, how can we bless the Lord? Well, let's us reflect on God's redemption for us. In Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 22, and I'm just going to read a couple parts here, not the whole thing. This is how it describes us before Christ. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Skipping ahead to verse 19, the second half. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification meaning us being made more perfect and more like Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting out of that? Uh, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What a poignant question. For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The Bible describes us exactly like Israel, that we are slaves, captive to sin and sinfulness. And as we reflect, Ephesians 2, well, I'm going to finish this. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a grim picture of who we were before Christ. And I, I, I struggle with this idea sometimes when I reflect on my life before Christ, because if I, if I look at myself like behaviorally, it's pretty similar. Um, I grew up in church, going to church. I knew what it looked like to be a Christian. I knew the things you had to do to look like a Christian. But in that season of my life, if I examine my heart, the idea of captivity to sin, to being um, driven by the passions of the flesh, to carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, like to be governed by those things, owned by them, um, that totally describes where I was at. I was in a place where I was very proud of the fact that I looked like a Christian and in that position of pride looked on others in judgment and simultaneously was very jealous of them because they seemed to do whatever they want to do without any consequences and I couldn't. And so I had this, I knew what God wanted me 
to, look, to do and to look like what, what a Christian should be doing. And also, everything in me wanted the other thing. I was captive to that until I made Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life and was given a new heart with new desires and was set free from that and became a slave to God. Galatians 3 says this about our redemption. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For his written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. We have been redeemed. God has paid a price. The New Testament also says in 1 Corinthians that we were bought with a price, that, that, that we were owned by sin. And God paid a price to buy us from that and to make us part of his family, to be part of his household. And our captivity to sin is no more. And so we experience the steadfast love of Christ through our redemption. The fact that we've been bought with a price and are now made part of God's family and his people. God oftentimes says in Scripture, I mean countless times, that I will be their God and they will be my people. God has chosen, like chooses and has chosen us to like be part of his family. And I think that's a really amazing thought. And so when we wonder, how do we get a place of blessing the Lord? Let's remember that God has redeemed us. My soul, bless the Lord. In verse 8, we also see that we experience the steadfast love of God through forgiveness. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. The psalmist is quoting um, Exodus 34 here. He goes on to say, he does, uh, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In verse 8, we see God's attitude towards his people. Right? What is God's like, heart and attitude towards us? He is merciful and he is gracious. Merciful meaning he does not give us what we do deserve. And he is gracious, meaning he does give us what we do not deserve. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast, constant, never-changing love for us. And then in 9 through 12, we see God's actions towards his people. He does not, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. I want to read that again. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That one really hit me this week. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Israel experienced the forgiveness of the Lord countless times. You read the Old Testament, I mean, you, can, you, you are hard-pressed to not stumble upon a story of God having to forgive his people. And so the psalmist is reminding them, like, remember how often God has forgiven us and welcomed us back, how he has been merciful toward us and, and also gracious towards us. And as we reflect on our own forgiveness I mean, we see Jesus. 
In Christ, we too are the people of God, just like Israel was. Not only is God slow to anger, but actually, he's not angry toward us at all because Christ has atoned for our sins so that we need no longer be under his anger anymore. I want to reflect on verse 10 real quick. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And I want to ask the question of, like this question, what, how should God deal with us if he dealt with us according to our sins and our iniquities? And when I was asking myself that question this week, I really wanted to go to a place of like, I mean, definitely more severely than he did, but I still defensively or trying to like excuse or justify my behavior, whatever, just like it's not quite as bad. But we actually know what it, what it, it, it should look like for, for him to deal with us according to our sins is we just look at Jesus and his suffering and his passion and his crucifixion. That's how God ought to deal with us. And as I was reflecting on all of that, I was thinking, I, I, I mean, looking at the crucifixion, watching the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that film, or anything like, like just any of that imagery, reflecting on that, I often think, wow, look what God's done for me. But I hardly ever think, that should be me. But it should be all of us. But God in his steadfast love does not deal with us according to our sins or our iniquities. Rather, he does deal with us according to the redemptive work of his son, Jesus. It's pretty amazing that, that God has done this. God has satisfied his just nature in punishing our sin in Christ, but has also been merciful towards us and then giving us everything that Christ deserves. And I think a lot of times we think about forgiveness, and it's a really dynamic idea, especially if we just really meditate on our sin and our sinfulness and all these things. But the psalmist kind of goes, on, goes beyond all of this. And he talks about the removal of our sins. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was like, is that, this, is that like the same thing, like God forgiving our sins and removing our sins? Or is it just like a poetic sort of explanation of forgiveness, or is that something that actually happens? And I, I think it's something that actually happens. And there's a reason why I think it's very important. So in, in Le, uh, Leviticus 16, 1 through 34, which I'm not going to read, you can read it on your own time, but it talks about God sets forth for the people of Israel the day of atonement and what needs to happen once a year for, the, for basically the people of Israel to be like, here's all of our sin and to atone for it. And there's lots of different things that God lays out in there, but one of the things that God lays out in there is the ritual of the scapegoat, which is where we get the term scapegoat. And what happens is the priest would take two goats and one goat he would kill for the sins of his people, right? Kind of as a punishment for the sin. In the second goat, the priest would lay, its, lay his hands on the goat and confess all of the sins of the people of Israel. I don't know how long that prayer took, probably a long time. But, but like symbolically putting on to this goat every sin of every person in Israel. And then that goat would be led out from among the people. So like, like while they were still wandering in the wilderness, it'd be led out from the camp. Afterwards, it'd be led out from Jerusalem. And it would be sent away. Um, and the image was, was meant to basically be this goat carries the sins of the people over the horizon forever. 
a physical removal of the sins of the people from them. And I think it's really important because I think about forgiveness and God forgiving my sin, but I also think like, well, but we both know that still happened, right? That I'm still this person and I've still done these things. And God's like, no, I've, I'm taking that away from you. Yes, you have done them and they're forgiven and now, they're, and now I'm taking them away. In John chapter one, John the Baptist sees Christ and describes him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right, same thing, same picture. And so there's, there's, it, there's, there's a wonder in forgiveness, right? If you just meditate on the forgiveness of your sins, it's a big deal. If you then take it and look at the picture of God removing our sins from us, I think it gets that much more beautiful. And in Christ, and we talked about the idea of sanctification a little bit in this, of us being made perfect like Christ, we also see that through his Holy Spirit, we and us being sanctified, we actually have a removal of our sinfulness, ultimately leading to eternal life. That one day in eternity, whatever about us that is broken in our own sinful nature will eventually completely be crucified and put to death and removed from us. And we'll be made like Christ. We'll one day look like him. That's a, it's pretty wonderful. It's pretty amazing. And so when we think, going back to the one point of this one-point sermon, how do I get to a place where I love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Well, let's put our minds onto the truth that God forgives our sins. We experience his steadfast love because he forgives our sins and he removes our sins, and one day he will remove our sinfulness. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Reading on in verse 13, the psalmist says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Man, I think that's a really pretty, pretty powerful picture, that, that there's a flower in the field, and that when it's gone, its place knows it no more. It is not remembered. I mean, it really is pretty sobering to think about. And I, of all these sort of pictures of the way in which the psalmist kind of talks about um, how we experience the steadfast love of God, I think that the idea of God as compassionate and we experience his love in his compassion toward us is, at least for me in prepping this this week, that it hit me the hardest. It really softened my heart. Um, another way that the word compassion is translated is... Uh, pity. And so I think of compassion as like, oh, that's like, it's kind of like this affectionate, kind of cute, oh, like, like the way you treat a baby, like, like oh, you know, that's really nice. But, but it's kind of like this, this, I have, I'm like, your heart breaks for the reality of a situation or circumstance. And again, how does it, how is it when Israel hears this psalm, how do they hear and see and reflect on the compassionate love of God? Through his basic, basically through his patience and long-suffering with their general rebellion and disobedience. Again, I'm not going like to belabor the point by quoting the whole Old Testament, right? But there's just countless episodes of the rebellion and disobedience and indifference that Israel has towards God. And ever, God waits to be compassionate for them. In Isaiah 
um, 30, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That word gracious is also translated to compassionate, so I'll just plug it in. Therefore the Lord waits to be compassionate to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is the God of justice, and blessed are all who wait for him. Micah, another prophet, says this, He, the Lord, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And this one might be my favorite. In Zechariah 10, verses 6, it says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. God's attitudes towards us, and we, we, we feel like, I think we get this image of God of, of being severe and harsh, especially when we see something like the Old Testament God, right, who, who does discipline his people, who does have a severity towards sin, and he does. But when you really look at it, especially if you like put it in the historical context of, God, context of God's patience, God waits and pleads with his people and sends them prophets and judges and, 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 and does everything he can to encourage them to repent without having to discipline them. The discipline of God is the last step that he does because he will not, he loves the people of Israel and he loves us too much to let, to let, it, to let us never come back and to never get our attention and to never bring us back into repentance. But he is compassionate and long-suffering. I love the picture of him waiting to have compassion on us. Ever Israel failed the Lord. They turned to other gods. They desired other kings. They sinned. They went their own way. And ever the Lord patiently waited to be compassionate toward them. God remembered their sinfulness and their frailty, and he bore with them until they would return to him. And that compassion is what we experience ourselves too. I love... Reading the Gospels is just a joy every time, and I love seeing Jesus interact with people, especially the um, those who were like oppressed by demons or or or, or uh, had some kind of injury, were blind or whatever else, or those, especially those who were publicly known to be sinners, because it almost always says, either explicitly or through Christ's actions, that He has compassion on them. What a picture. Most famously, there's the verse that says that uh, when Christ saw the crowds, he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on us. And so as we struggle, I mean, again, going back to the original question of how well do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, God knows my frame, he remembers that I am dust. God knows I can't do that. He knows we can't do that. He calls us to do it. As Christians, he's given us his Holy Spirit to be able to do it graciously, compassionately. But he knows we can't. I was reflecting on this a little bit because it talks about the picture of a father showing compassion to his children. And at first I was like, oh, I'm not a good dad. Um, because... I am not so long-suffering with my kids as the Lord is with me. But um, there are moments when I get it right sometimes-ish. Um, 
And I had this picture of like, I mean, I just had, like there are times, and my wife's really good at reminding, reminding me of this, that like, Travis, they're five years old. They can't do that. Or it's been a long day. Their capacity to listen to you doesn't exist anymore. You just got to deal with it. You've got to put their pajamas on. You've got to put them to bed. They're not going to do it themselves. Um, and even maybe more of like a, like a dramatic, like funny picture of it would be like if I had this like severe, angry expectation for Molly, our five-month-old, to be able to dress herself and feed herself and do all these things, and of course she can, because she's a baby, right? And like, obviously God wants us to grow up in maturity too, but ever, I mean, he, he knows, I, I, it says it here, he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Like, he, know, he knows that we can't do those things, and his attitude towards us isn't severity, Compassion, pity, patience, long-suffering, and a gracious encouragement. I mean, he, like I said, he, we, we've been given the Holy Spirit to literally do what we can't do on our own. Like the Christian life, I mean, we, we talk about like the Christian life. We've prayed to receive Christ, right? We've made him the Lord and Savior of our life. But if you want to think about that, like God's forgiven your sins, your eternity's kind of sorted. But like living as a Christian, you can't do no matter how hard you try you're not going to be able to. And God in his compassion has given us the Holy Spirit. Christ, oh man, in the Last Supper discourse, talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit and really says it's better that I go. I mean, that, and he talks about the great things that, that we will do, greater things than even Christ did in his own ministry because God's going to give us the Holy Spirit. So God's given us the very Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, I think Paul says in one of his letters, to, to, to even just follow Jesus at all. Because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And so when I think about how do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, God is compassionate towards you. And so bless the Lord, oh my soul. He closes by saying this. Oh, sorry. One thing I found really fascinating and I kind of going out of the flow of my notes here, but I have to say it because I thought it was just amazing. When it talks about um, Jesus coming, or, or the, the steadfast love of God, which is what we've been reflecting on all morning long, and it uses a, a word picture to describe the immeasurable distance that the steadfast love of God is. And it says, as high as the heavens are from the earth. And as I was thinking about that, I realized that's the distance that Christ came to be God among us, the, and, and so we've experienced the steadfast love of Christ and the redemption through, through Christ, right? And our forgiveness through Christ and the compassion love of God through Christ. And that, that, that distance is the actual distance that Christ came, right, for us to experience all this. Um, and it's just amazing to me. Anyway, sorry, I jumped out of, out of order, but here we go. We're going back to the end here. 17, in verse 17, the psalmist says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. God's unchanging love is from everlasting, eternity past, to everlasting, eternity future. That's a very long time. On those who fear him is righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And I love the way he closes this. He's gotten to a point now where his own soul is blessing the Lord, and now he's encouraging other people to bless God. 
Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, everything he has made. In all places of his dominion. What places are his dominion? Verse 19, he's established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Literally everything, everywhere, bless the Lord. And then closes by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. The greatest commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cannot do it on our own. Me and I hope an encouragement to us because we can reflect on these things, forgetting not his benefits, so that we might bless and have the right affections and the right reverence and the right posture in our own hearts and souls towards God to do that. And so... If you are a Christian here this morning, a follower of Jesus, my prayer, as I said from the beginning, is that our time spent here and really hopefully your time moving forward throughout the week and really the rest of your life would be and if ever you forget or are not in a place where you can bless the Lord that you would take time to remember his benefits, his steadfast love, his compassion, his, our redemption, your forgiveness, the removal of your sins. And if you're here and you're not a believer, all of this probably sounds really nice, but it also probably doesn't sound like anything like your experience yet. And so I would love for you to know God and know his steadfast love in the way that I do. Yeah, I feel like I'm not going to do some sort of altar call thing, but if you want to know more, we want to talk about it, like talk to me, talk to Andrew after this. We'll grab a coffee this week or whatever. I, I mean, I want you to bless the Lord the way that I want to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let me pray. Um, God, you've done amazing things. Um, it, it's, it is a joy to take time and reflect on and remember your steadfast love for us. You are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love. God, I pray that you would forgive me for all the times that I don't love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is often. I thank you that even in confessing that, you have compassion towards me and towards us in that, because you remember our frame and you know that we're dust. God, I thank you for Jesus, by whom we know your steadfast love, by whom we've been forgiven, by whom we've been redeemed by whom our sins have been removed from us, and by whom we know your compassionate heart towards us. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for your word. And thank you for all the wonderful things you've done to us and all the ways in which you've shown us your love. It's in your name I pray.